Jonathan Feldman sits down with us today. He's the principal of Feldman Architecture. He started the firm in 2003 after discovering it was his true passion. He tried his hand at filmmaking, majored in astronomy. He's a creative force. He has a warm, modern aesthetic, and I just love all his work. We learned all about it today. with my friend Jonathan Feldman, awesome guy, amazing architect, runs a killer firm. And uh, my first question for you is head or heart? You know, when you design, um, which one of those grabs you? That's a good question. Um, it's an evolution. I think it's very clear that I always started with the head. That's where I came from. I sort of have a um, a science background. I wanted to be an astronomer or an astronaut. Um, and nice. I think for the longest period of time, um, everything was all about the logic and the rationality behind things. Um, right. But the more I've experienced and grown and seen things, the more I realize that, you know, architecture is physical and you really got to listen to the way humans respond to spaces and mm. you can only rationalize that so much. So there really is a balance. I had to learn how to listen to my heart, as you put it. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, you have these moments where you go to spaces and they just move you, you know, whether for me early on, it was in nature, you know, you stand in Yosemite Valley. Um, there's something physical that happens to you in a place like that, mm. that, you know, words and, and logic only get you so far. I remember standing in front of the Taj Mahal, mm -hmm. a building which was of a style that I just didn't have all that much interest, but I was mm -hmm. near there and I thought I'd see it. Mm -hmm. it. Totally blew me away. Like I just, something physically happened as I stood there and just saw the proportions of this building in the landscape, in space. Mm -hmm. The thing I've really realized is the buildings that I think I fall in love with from photographs and mm -hmm. drawings and hearing people. And then I go and experience them. I never understand them the way I thought I would until I'm in those spaces. Mm -hmm. A lot of the conversations I have early on with some of our clients is, well, what, what do you want to feel at the end of the, the project and when you're in your space? When you go into the living room and you come out, like, what is that meant to deliver to you? Soothing, exciting, uh, remind you of an, another home when you're growing up, perhaps. You know, all these different feelings I'm thinking about. And then listening to you from your perspective, and we just looked at your Telegraph Hill uh, project on the right. website. So much of how you feel in that space would be the, uh, the view and all those twinkling lights, as you put it, in the, in the water, glistening at night and Telegraph Hill, or, or sorry, the Quick Tower. That's also how you feel. So it's really not as involved with what you've made. It's kind of about how you may be amplifying the was external. So that's kind of blowing my mind. What do you think about <laughs> that? Mind blown. <laughs> but well, I mean, I think that's the key is to try to figure out ahead of time. What do you want people to feel? Yeah. And it's always going to be different. You know, if you're in a war memorial building, you want to feel something very different than if you are in a church trying to get inspired or on a, in a resort, on vacation, trying to relax and chill and, you know, de-stress, mm -hmm. right? There are different things that we need to choreograph for whoever it is who use these buildings. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's that deep kind of 
early conversations where we probe and program mm -hmm. and set the targets for these things. Uh, so we call that in our studio the concept phase. What's your concept phase look like? And do you call it that too? Yeah, I do. Although I would say that a lot of what we're talking about, we, we break out a pre-concept phase, mm -hmm. pre-design or discovery. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, I feel like the heart of good design um, comes out of the setup for it, mm -hmm. which is the asking the tough questions, asking the right questions, um, challenging uh, ourselves, challenging our clients, and really trying to get to understand um, the place that we're building, mm -hmm. um, how to react to that in an appropriate way, um, and the aspirations and the stuff that we're talking about. What are we trying to feel? What is, you know, who's going to use this? What are the different scenarios? You know, we do a lot of residential work. You know, we want to really understand what's it like when just the couple is there or the family. What's it like when they're throwing a party? And you want to aspire usually to different things mm -hmm. at these different scenarios. You want to talk them all through and then design. And so then the concept phase, you kind of have a roadmap by the time you start the concept phase because mm -hmm. you understand sort of what are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to avoid? What are your fears? You know, often people have a whole list of everything they're trying to achieve. And part of our job is to filter through that and say, okay, you just gave me 30 things. You know, let's figure out the three that we care more about mm -hmm. and let them really nail those and maybe kind of filter a little bit out so you don't do everything. You know, we don't want to give you the Swiss Army knife. You know, we'd rather give you the really good corkscrew, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can only have so good of a corkscrew right. if it's right next to a saw and a magnifying glass. Yeah. And if you had to, well, can you articulate your firm's work for some of our listeners who might not know it? And your website's just Jonathan Feldman, is it? Feldman Architecture. FeldmanArchitecture.com. And so can you articulate your work for people who... Uh, um, would like to know? Probably poorly. I mean, <laughs> I often think, you know, we're working really hard on a project and then at the end of the day, we step back and try to figure out what we just did. Yeah. Um, but I will say that there are certain clear drivers to our work. Uh -huh. You know, we're not looking for work that's of a style or a feel. It's not our goal to, you know, there are some architects you walk by and you're like, oh, that's a Frank Geary building. And then you go to Bilbao and you go, oh, that's, I get it. He's working on the same idea over and over and yeah. over again, and he's refining it. You look at Herzog and Demjorn, and you go to the de Young here, you go to the Tate in London, no idea it's the same people. They're looking for a mastery of the problem at hand. Yes. Um, and we're more of that camp. You know, We have a broad range of work. Um, I think if people look at our website, look at our work, um, they will wonder, like, what is the thread that holds it all together sometimes? And I think the thread is really listening to the clients, really responding sensitively to the place, mm -hmm. um, and then bringing our own set of, um, I don't know, values, thoughts, philosophies about how to make things, you know, mm -hmm. things about how you bring light into a building, how you connect to the outdoors, how you don't put anything in there that's um, over-designed or calling attention to itself unless it's the moment that is the focus of everything. So a kind of restraint. So those, those are the themes that we want throughout all the work, but we also really want each project to be uh, a carefully considered response to its specific needs, which means it shouldn't look like somebody else's building, 
sometimes people will, will come up to us and say, I love that house. I want one of those, or I want yeah. something just like it. Yeah. And then we draw, we listen to them. We look at yeah. the site and then we usually draw something a little different. And then we have yeah. to have that conversation of like, you can't have just, you know, version 2.0 of that because that was a specific thing. The solving one problem. You got another set of, yeah. We got, you know, on the internet, you get people contacting you who see your work from all over the place. We got somebody from Texas who saw the Ocho house that we did, which is on a really steep hillside and it's dug into the hill and yeah. it's got grass on it. I can see where you're going with this. And they want to put it on a Texas plane. <laughs> he wanted to put it on a Texas flat lot. Yeah. Um, and he goes, I love that house. I yeah. love the garden on it, all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, um, I got all these cars, so I'm going to lift it up off the ground. I mean, the whole reason, the whole driver of that house was dug into the hillside, right? Yeah. I mean, that was the thing about that house. Yes. And he's lifting it up. He's putting his eight-car garage below it. And, and, he, and he even sent us, and I have it pinned up in our studio, a, a hand sketch that he did of how he would modify it. And it totally looks like our house. On like you totally ruined it. But yeah. you completely can identify like this, you know, it's almost like a game of telephone where you just take an idea and then you just yeah. keep distorting it till it's ridiculous. So, um, yeah, we're a big fan of kind of one-off, listen to, to what's at hand, the problem at hand, and solve for it. Yeah. Uh, so there's travel also seems to influence so many people, right? And, and um, there's also, I would have two questions. Maybe it's a two-part question. You know, what's inspiring you today? that keeps on, you know, inspiring you to help your work grow um, and cater to your clients, both listening to them, but bringing your energy or, or your, your expertise to each one of their projects. And do you ever gleam anything from travel? Because every, every creative I've ever known says, oh, it just like fills me up when I go traveling. Right. But have you ever gleamed anything from your travels and brought it and then used that for inspiration? Sure. Let me... Uh... So I unpack both, both those parts. questions, the, the two-part two part yeah. separate question? Well, I mean, to me, the one thing that I've noticed um, when I started this uh, going out on my own 15 years ago, um, we just kind of reacted to stuff. And, you know, as you know, starting your own business, you know, it's just crazy. You're trying to keep things going. You know, yeah. you and I both have young kids that kind of distracts you. And so travel's a little bit of a luxury. Yeah. Like I didn't see a movie for probably a decade out of my house. So yeah. like the ability to go away for a week and say, you you're know, see you guys, I'm going to go discover inspiration. Right yeah. there. So there was a little bit of a vacuum of that. I have to uh, admit, um, uh, as much as I think it, you know, conceptually, it's really important. I will say that, um, you know, we've gotten to a point, I've gotten to a point in my career, we've gotten to a point in our firm where I have three partners. I've delegated a lot of the running the shop kind of stuff mm -hmm. um, to focus more on design and inspiration and what do we want to work on next kind of things. Um, and with that, I've made a big uh, priority to de-stress, de-unplug, think about things, and also to travel. So um, it's only in the last few years that I've gotten to travel considerably more than in the past. Um, high on my list of places to travel once I cleared yes. my schedule a little yes. bit was Japan. Yes. I've always loved Japan. I've always loved Japan, Japanese culture, Japanese food is a big hit with my family and myself. Um, and then I've just always been in love with Japanese architects when I was in school. 
Tadao Ando and um, that crew was sort of the pinnacle. And they had the sensibility of craft and restraint and poetry that just I've always been trying to mm. follow. Um, so I, my kids uh, are 11 and uh, are 12 and 9. Um, sorry about that, Sasha. Um, but uh, my wife, who's an interior designer, we went to Japan and we spent uh, two weeks there. And I dragged them to all these architectural sites. Soaked it all up. And, and yeah, and we did the normal stuff. But it was a very kind of building design focused two weeks yeah. uh, for the whole family. <laughs> Yay! For like, um, they're, they're, so, the Griswolds are going yeah. to Japan. Totally. On a total tour. So it just blew my mind. And I came back and totally thinking, challenging myself and thinking about things in different ways. And some of it literally like just, oh, that's how they solve this problem. The Japanese, you know, wood slats and screens and those type of things are very kind of, um, uh, you see them everywhere now in modern architecture. Nobody does them better than the Japanese. Right. So to go there and to see the modern versions of it, to then dial back. A thousand years and see the early versions of it That's you know in traditional architecture um yeah so there's just a mastery of materiality of detail of connection why do you think that culture is so design driven i mean they've got it you know i think you know there was just it was this continuous focus for so long right you know i mean i think that they've just been doing their thing and chipping away at it and just in everything like the guy fixing the sidewalk like this the pride of kind of doing your job right mastery seems to be a word that they're absolutely enthusiastic about it was absolutely yeah no it, it blows my mind i mean everybody there works slowly and methodically mm. it's like i don't know if i would want to design a country's economy to go that way um but boy the the service the you get mm. the pride you get the um yeah and the results and uh so do you have some of that appreciation for that craft because i read you also worked as a filmmaker and even a carpenter uh before you dove in and found your desire for architecture is that right yeah i think i sort of found my way into architecture knowing that i like to make things wow. you know i was the guy who would just i had a oh, little yeah. woodshed in the back and i would build go-karts or weird little i don't know machine things that didn't really do anything I designed a system where my old stereo before remote controls had oh. these strings and pulleys yeah, yeah. so I could sit in bed and turn it on and off and change the volume and I, all of that kind of stuff. I had that on the light switch like this, you know, Total, the yeah. toggle. So I, <laughs> I took uh, some sort of hacksaw or some sort of tool to cut a groove in the plastic. Right. To then really to get, notch it in. To, yeah. yeah, to notch into yeah. two different strings so I could do an eye hook. Right. So I had the exact, we should compare like notes. I could, of, I like, could redo it. You stole my idea. No. <laughs> Probably. What, how old were you? Older than you. <laughs> I was just going to, I was, I was, uh, you were like, I was 10. I was like, I but was, you were the child three. genius. So you were probably still yeah. ahead of me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been my age. I would have been uh, 13 doing that. That's probably the age My I first was. project. <laughs> I say that, oh my gosh, I hope, well, mom probably won't listen to this, but your mouth's still mom. a good story. <laughs> She doesn't know this. I can't say it. I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, so we uh, had a fish tank. Mm -hmm. Let's just say there was an accident. Right. The, the, the Gravity. Tank. Yeah, there was a, my friends and I were messing around. And right. I convinced my mom that it was somehow 
Um, we were just trying to slide it over, you right. know, and I blew my I fell apart. And then, and then went all over our carpet and we right. saved the fish and everything. And I used that to, like, let's make my room black, you know, <laughs> and I was like 17 or something. Right. And she wouldn't allow me to paint the whole room black. So we did a really dark gray, charcoal even. Right. And I did one or two walls with black pinstriped um, wallpaper. <laughs> And then, and then uh, the designer and, was born. And then charcoal, <laughs> and then it lay dormant for like ten years. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I'm just coming back around with like loving black a little bit this last year. Uh, so uh, so you had inspiration early on too. What were some of the other contraptions you built? Um, well, the go kart was a big thing, and then I also got a little motor Aut- automated. I mean, did the well, so I did get a motor. That part it. Like it pushed me forward, but I never like the whole gas, the whole gas brakes thing. I didn't quite get that down. Yeah, but on a flat, I was I was good. You're going um, so I did that. Um, I don't know weird little contraptions that would allow you to pick up a rock without bending over, or slingshot like things that would launch. I don't know rockets or objects or whatever. Uh, it was and where did mechanical, you mechanical, have... like moving things always? Yeah, where did you grow up again? In Palo Alto. Okay. Did you have a treehouse? A forest near you? You know, there was a treehouse in the backyard, um, but it was pretty dangerous getting up. I did a lot of tree climbing, but not yeah. at the treehouse. I loved climbing things. And I uh, so I started um, our team where my wife and I, Trey, the amazing Trey Schlarb. She is amazing. Uh, and I started uh, the, our sort of um, main firm, Green Couch, our, 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 what do you call it, the anchor firm. Let's yeah. call it that. Uh, we started in our Knob Hill kitchen, you know, and it was, it was six by 12, this whole kitchen. And we had a little niche for, uh, we had IKEA shelves and it went, uh, for a desk stacked twice uh, stacked too high mm-hmm. over on their edge maybe you can imagine them yeah and then i had to sit sideways because my knees wouldn't fit underneath the desk of course <laughs> right. so that's how i started emailing and starting to like put together a business right. plan that's how it all started with no desk oh no desk <laughs> well I, oh yeah modified desk right? yeah um and then you started in your basement i started in my basement yeah yeah i uh yeah, I don't know. I think I just always had a hard time kind of going to work and I always just kind of wanted to do my own thing. And so, um, you know, I was working at another firm with kind of, you know, eyes on what could I do next. And uh-huh. we we bought an old house um, in the city and that became a project. Yes. Um, and then um, a couple people, we got some kitchen jobs, we completed our house. Um, during all of this, I kept the old jobs kind of moonlighting so that somebody would pay me and I had a little bit of security. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and so for, for like th- the first three years, I had different quote unquote legitimate architects who um, would give me work as things would slow down um, mm-hmm. and also give me a little bit of freedom to take on jobs on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I finished my house, had something to put in my portfolio that actually... Um, got published in Sunset Magazine, and so the phone started ringing. That was oh, a wow. good thing. That's cool. Um, yeah. Wow. Really looks, lucky. Looks like that. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, so I learned uh, the uh, importance of, you know, take some photographs of your stuff and show it to people. And have, you used, have you used, are you still in that house? 
No. I mean, no, that was, uh, we're kind of a serial fix-up house. Right, me too. Yeah, so we're uh, on number three or four. Yeah. What's your usual cycle? Three years move? Well, we maybe are kidding ourselves or maybe have evolved. We call this our forever house. Um, we know it's not our forever house, but right. we're just making it not the three or four year thing. I, um, I've done two forever houses. Yeah. <laughs> and so I don't name How I, long is forever? I, I think it's know. like five years. I like, I don't call it the forever house on right. purpose. Right. You know something really weird? I have this, so I've, I've taken, you know, when the kids grow up, your granddad did this to you too. You put a pencil and a date and when their heads were this yeah, height. Sure. You do it on the door jam in the kitchen or something. Right. So I transferred it from one house to another <laughs> and then I used the... The actual piece of trim you moved over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I used the uh, trace paper. Right. And I have it sitting in my, at my house, and I'm afraid to put it up to this house, which we love, and I would like to think it's my forever house, but I'll never call it my forever house. Right, because you're jinxing it. Yeah. And I'm not even going to do that. I don't really want to have this notch. Right. That... Yeah. But I will say, I don't know whether you feel the same way. I mean, when we were just starting, clients were asking us to do stuff that wasn't that appealing. So doing our own projects, you know, and, and anytime we did our house, I was doing it very closely with my wife, Lisa, mm -hmm. the amazing interior designer. Mm-hmm. You mm -hmm. know, Lisa, have to yeah. give our wives credit here. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the force behind. Um, but uh, what I was going to say is that the clients usually wanted to do sort of some version of what we've done in the past where we wanted to do something that nobody's let us do before. So buying house, fixing it up is the, I mean, obviously, you know, I say that now knowing that nobody can afford to buy anything in San Francisco, but when oh. we started, it was a different landscape yeah. 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and so we always, you know, bought a house that had some potential to do something that we hadn't done before. Yes. Now I'm in a different place where my clients often are bolder than I am, mm -hmm. certainly fiscally. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, so the need to kind of do my own house, to do our own house, to push the portfolio isn't what it used to be. Mm -hmm. Although there still always are kind of that one crazy thing that nobody else wants me to do, but mm -hmm. I really feel like needs to be done. Oh, 100%. I always um, keep a hold of those ideas. I shelf it. <laughs> yeah. And I'll come back and see you later, old friend. Yeah. And so, you know how the saying goes, there's no new ideas because it's just kind of reiteration? But yeah. there are new ideas. Yeah. So what are, can you think of some examples of new ideas you've thought of and you've invented? Um, probably not. <laughs> um, I've like, heard myself yeah. say that and like, have I thought of any new ideas? Yeah. I don't know if I can think of any examples. Um, maybe we'll circle back to that. I'll see if I can. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to think of that. I mean, we always are. You know, we actively in our studio talk about um, pushing new ideas, mm -hmm. and also the importance of not pushing too many new ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, there's such a steep learning curve, right? Mm -hmm. To anytime you try something new. You know, mm -hmm. people are hiring us because we have experience and we have some mastery over something. And mm -hmm. so we can't just go total like beta testing on them and then everything fails and, you know, you have to keep fixing things. So mm -hmm. usually we assess the client and we then try to stick in one or two kind of adventurous things, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's, you know, we've done a couple rammed earth wall projects now. Mm -hmm. um, there's a steep learning curve. And as I've learned now, a high level of unpredictability with um, everything rammed earth related. And I love the material, but I can't tell you how many people 
look at those projects in our portfolio and say, I love that. Can we do that? And my normal answer, usually, depending on how recent the project was, is like, I don't know if you want that. Um, let's talk about it, right? Give me like eight months to see this through. Yeah. No, and, and well, and I think it's a little bit like having children, like you're just overwhelmed when you have a child and you're like, no more ever. And then yeah. like, you know, three years later, you forget how bad it was. Yeah, so Rammed Earth is sort of like that with me. It's where like did you do that? Where, is, where have you done Rammed Earth? <laughs> I'm sorry. I know what the child thing is. Yeah. And where, where do you do the Rammed Earth projects? Or, um, I mean, they can be anywhere. The, oh. We've done two big ones um and one was in carmel valley and one was on a ranch in hollister cool um, and they were great projects we loved them but we worked so hard and we you know countless hours that we can't bill anybody because we told them it was a good idea and then we had to go figure it out and whether uh. it's the problem with the construction whether it's the building department who just doesn't know what to make of rammed earth and wants uh. you to make it at uh uh, concrete like strength that doesn't make any sense because of some interpretation of codes um, who just you okay. know, lost a lot of blood on the the kind of new, break new ground with materials mm, I'm, I've heard of rammed earth so don't laugh at me yeah no I know let's back up <laughs> I know everything there is about rammed earth but a lot of our listeners might not hear a little yeah. bit more detail maybe about... I should explain it to you as if you didn't know yeah. just yeah. so that you're <laughs> Your listeners might catch up to the, the level of expertise you have. Yeah. <laughs> so Rammed Earth, I'm not, I mean, we've done a few buildings and um, uh, Rammed Earth is a very old building technique. Uh, the Chinese were doing it, um, I think, thousands of years ago. And basically it's taking dirt um, uh, and you need a certain type of dirt, but it's taking dirt and putting it into forms as if you were forming up concrete. So nowadays you do that with wood boards or with metal panels um, or masonite or something like that. Um, and you put a layer of dirt in there, maybe that's 10, 12 inches high. And then you pneumatically, well, you used to do it by hand and now they use these pneumatic rammers, which yeah. basically compact it compactors. down. They're compactors. Yeah. Um, and they you water it down. You, well, there's a, so, what they use now is a mix of the dirt that has cement in it oh. because we're an earthquake country. And so we're yeah. basically mixing all that together and we're basically creating like limestone or some kind of geological process by mm -hmm. forcing the pressure onto it. Mm -hmm. And you do one row, which will be anywhere once it's compacted four to 10 inches high, typically that can be different. Um, and that's called a lift. And then you add another row of soil and then you'd make another one. So the characteristic trait of rammed earth is these horizontal striated bands that aren't perfectly level. There's a kind of mm. um, earth quality to them. There is an earth quality so to them. So it's exposed in the end. And so then you pull off the boards and what you have is what, instead of a concrete wall, you have this this solid. And is it meant to be a rotini wall? Or is, it, is it meant to be well, a so structural foundation wall too? Well, you want to show it because you're working really hard to it. So you never want to bury the thing. It right. wants to be a feature wall. It's yeah. beautiful. But because it's made with, with cement in it and because there's rebar in it, because yeah. we're an earthquake country, they can actually be really strong. Mm -hmm. So it will hold up your roof. It's going to be strong. Um, although, you know, 
they're all, depending on where you're using it in a design. Sometimes I've seen them as just sort of the anchor wall in the lobby of a resort okay. because they're special. It might hold one roof line. It wouldn't want to hold the whole maybe hillside plus three stories above it. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. I mean, if you were really doing heavy retaining, I think you'd probably yeah. want to use concrete, which the, the thing about it, rammed earth, is that um, you know, we like to use the local soil. One of the great reasons for using rammed earth is the oh. ecological oh, benefits. Yeah, you excavate. You know, the first project we used it for, we were going to have to offhaul the soil that we were digging out for the foundations and put them in a landfill somewhere or regrade them somewhere. And instead, we made our house out of this byproduct of excavation. So it's a great, like, you know, close the loop and take mm -hmm. your waste and build your wall out of it. Um, but everybody's soil is different, right? So you it's actually need the experts to come and mm -hmm. test, you know, so we dig pits and it's really interesting. You get different colors depending on how far down you go um, mm -hmm. and you mix them with concrete and then you basically have a palette to paint with. Mm -hmm. And we literally did these drawings where we drew, okay, we had three colors that we selected for this project in Hollister. Um, this sort of beige color, this, uh, more cool gray color and then the client really wanted kind of a brighter red color if you oh. look at the how the uh, walnut retreat on our website you'll see these red stripes so she wanted a little flare to it which rammed earth can do really well cool or doesn't need to so we had to draw the patterns of like and then do this you know we tried to tell the rammed earth people oh just make it look kind of natural and casual and they were like just tell me where to put the colors, please. Don't, yeah. don't get all like sensitive with me and tell me to get tell artists. Me two inches right, of right. redwood. So we drew all the lines yeah. and we said something like this, you yeah. know, gray, gray, beige, you know, we only want so many of these accents. We don't want too much red, just a little bit, you know, oh, sometimes man. we want the colors to repeat next to each other. So it doesn't feel too like black and white stripey. So this is like the interior. <laughs> I don't know if I probably fall in this bucket, but I know in interior designers uh, can annoy architects and builders through like these little nuances. Right. And this is an example of the yeah. builder rolling his eyes at the rammed earth architect, you know, going like, oh, just tell me how much. Right. No, I, I can imagine they still have the drawing and they show it to their friends and like, look at what the crazy <laughs> architect drew yeah. about how to make a quote unquote natural occurring, yeah. you know, look. Well, that, that really does sum up ex everything I knew about rammed earth. I mean, this is, this is a yeah, yeah. you articulated it, yeah. what I knew already perfectly. Yeah. I hope I didn't bore you since you didn't <laughs> yeah. know, know it before. <laughs> um, so, uh, what do you feel the greatest challenges are when it comes to designing environmental, environmental sustainable, you know, homes? Do you do a lot of that? Yeah, I mean, we we definitely really um, think there's a serious problem <laughs> in terms of the built environment, the amount of waste, the amount of energy that buildings use. Um, and so, no, we're, we're always trying to push. We are in a, a position to really direct a whole lot of resources, um, mm -hmm. both what it takes to build the building and, you know, if we design it well or poorly, how it sucks up resources for the rest of the building's life span, mm -hmm. which is, you know, in some cases going to be a long time. Um, and so, uh, there's just tons of challenges. A lot of it is us getting educated. You know, there's so much information out there and there's so many people who claim to have the newest thing that's best in terms of energy efficiency or, or whatever, healthy material sourcing. Um, 
sustainable sourced you know woods for instance you know everybody tells you about how it's sustainably harvest and then you say well do you have your you know um cert your paperwork and the chain of custody and all of that kind of stuff and they'll say oh no but we did it through just as reliable a source um, but we didn't want to deal with the paperwork and so mm -hmm. there's a lot of people out there with false claims and it's hard to get to the bottom of all of that mm -hmm. um i would also say that um you know, really kind of pushing clients too about um, what what the low-hanging fruit are. You know, there's tons that you can do that doesn't cost any more, that doesn't compromise design. You know, let's put in good insulation. Let's point our windows in the right direction. Let's think about sun angles and mm -hmm. when we site the buildings and things like that. Um, and then there are the other things that maybe won't pay off. Right now, water is a serious problem, but um, water is subsidized in California. Mm -hmm. And so you're never going to pay for the water tanks. Well, I wouldn't say never. Hopefully water pricing will change to reflect its true value. Mm -hmm. um, and we all need to kind of keep pushing for that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I still we're pushing and in, a, in a, a large number of our projects, we're setting up gray water systems where you grab all the shower water and the laundry water and and you use it for at least the irrigation in the house, mm -hmm. um, if not flushing the toilets or or more uh, aggressive uses of uh, of domestic water use. But, you know, the idea of taking potable water um, that you can drink and is super, super clean and using it to flush your toilet, like that's just a huge waste of energy. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can just generate your own water, because we're always getting rid of all this water that isn't that dirty and we have the technology to clean it. Yeah. Okay, that's where it all comes from. No catchment systems, you know, like... No, well, we do those as well. I mean, that, we're... That practical in San Francisco, like you get deluge or zero for eight months. Right. The, Absolutely. You know, we have we have in our house when we retrofitted this old Victorian, you know, we put in rainwater and gray water. Um, so we have all of that. Um, uh, and the rainwater will last, you know, halfway into the summer because the gray water is doing the day to day in and day out. And we slowly pull from the rainwater. Um, and then, you know, mm. come July and August, that thing's usually pretty dry. And then we're just on gray water until the rains start coming again. Um, and, and do you have um, a favorite? Okay, so let me rephrase this. All your projects you're working on right now are your favorite projects. I'm giving you that. Every client I have is my favorite client. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if you had to pick out a, your favorite, we can do sections. We can do like my favorite house we did, you know, five to ten years ago. And the favorite house I've done within the last five years. You're trying to get me in trouble. No, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get, um, I'm just curious what would be your most fascinating, uh, project. And I know some of my most favorite projects this year have been the ones where the client really brought great idea and then we worked on it together and it was better than I could have done and better than he could have done. And, you know, we really amplified each other. Right. I mean, and that doesn't... It can't always happen like that. Right. It's not, I mean, you have a bigger responsibility. You have a bigger budget to manage. You have a, 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 a huge, huge undertaking every house. Right. Every home you're working on, the scale you do. Yeah. So maybe you don't want to answer that, but I was no, trying to I, work I, around the sure. typical answer is, well, the one I'm doing today and the one I'm doing tomorrow. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I get very attached to some and, yeah. you know, secretly 
everybody who knows me knows, oh my God, he's so in love with this one project or whatever. Uh -huh. um, but it's funny, it's like a relationship I have. Um, if anybody, uh, there, I have a project that, that died on me um, oh, and right. it was my favorite project. The one that got away? Yeah, but we figured it all out and we had it all designed, but then for a whole bunch of reasons yeah. it, it died. So if anybody before, wants yeah. to come and buy this property in Tiburon and uh, <laughs> work with me on my favorite project uh, and revive my heartbreak right now, um, you know how to reach me. 415-555-1212. Yeah, so save this architect's broken heart. Um, so there was that one. Um, uh, no, there was this project in Tiburon that was a building that uh, uh, is to be dug into the hillside in a way that, um, you know, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of how can buildings in these, you know, we work on a lot of these big, beautiful sites, right? And there's mm -hmm. such a responsibility to place the building in a way that enhances and harmonizes with that and doesn't just try to dominate the site and be too proud and too showy. So that's a big part of like my philosophy of dealing with these mm -hmm. pristine environments. Um, and this house um, took it to another level of not just put it in the ground and put dirt over it so mm -hmm. that it's less in your face um but really kind of making it part of the earth and we called it the contour house it's on our website um but the contour house so it contours with the land and it really feels Check. like uh dug in and then like outcroppings and so we really kind of took our cues from landforms um and that was that was a super exciting formal exercise of how can building relate to site. Is it still kind of rectilinear no. architecture? No, so no, no right angles. Um, it's oh. angular and it's oh, just wow. sort of kind of working its way around. Interesting. I can't wait to look at it. Yeah. There's, I, I was talking with another architect about this same thing. Uh, Michael Ember is an architect. Have you ever heard of him? He's read, read yeah, a couple sounds, of yeah. books and yeah. he, I think he's, has his uh, studio in Texas, which does right. lots of mount okay. mountain work. And uh, maybe I'm not describing this right, but he's uh, kind of high-end hacienda. It's kind of really classic mm -hmm. homes and you know, old timber beams if it's in the woods. Right. In the, if it's in the mountains. Exposed timber beams. Right. If it's in, uh, on the plains of Texas, perhaps it's using adobe-looking brick. Right. You know, so it's really made of the, of the place where materials it's around yeah. it. And he had a hard time reconciling the, the protractor looking modern architecture plopped into historic landscapes or whatever, not just right. landscapes, right. natural setting. Right. He had a hard time where it just didn't make sense for him. Right. And that's one side. And right. it's obviously the other side, which I like that juxtaposition. I right. demand that. Right. You're framing nature. You're showing how wild nature is by putting a straight line next to it. That whole approach. Is that it? That's what I... I no one's yeah. ever kind of like shared that part of it with me. Can you, yeah. can you tease that out? Is that kind of what it's, what it's about? Is, it, is that hard stop? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can mimic nature. You can relate to nature. Or uh -huh. you can distinguish, you know, and most buildings do all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the Ocho house, which was our first ground up house, that's the one dug into the side of the hill in Carmel mm -hmm. Valley. That's the one the guy wanted to put in Texas yes. over the garage. Um, bad idea. Um, but that was designed on a four foot grid. The entire building in plan was a grid um, in this place that was this um, 
crazy thick uh, ridge top with oaks. So tons and tons of oak trees all over the place. And the topography, there was no slope in any one direction. It was this very articulated, undulating site. And so the idea of putting a grid on it was specifically to have these straight measured um, perspectives and frames neck right up against the crazy wildness of the nature. And I felt like you sit in a room with grid lines on the floor and the beams and the windows and everything lined up. I, I actually, when I was doing it, I was thinking very much about how the Japanese, it's a wooden and concrete house and how the Japanese would expose the beams and have this whole rational way of doing it. They were great at putting kind of rational things in kind of wild settings to juxtapose. Mm -hmm. um, um, I mean, it's the idea of, you know, like a, a Japanese sand garden in a courtyard that's all wild right next to the rational grid of the building. Mm -hmm. um, but the Ocho house, um, you know, you would sit there and you would just, I think, have an extra appreciation of the beauty and the sort of uncontrolled energy of the site and the trees, particularly on that site next to the grid. This contour house is very much trying to be of the land, and so it's got no right angles. There are right angles, but the overall driving mm. lines of the house um, have to do with kind of shifting forms in a much more kind of land form geologic way. Do you... So I don't think there's a right or a wrong. Mm -hmm. I think you basically explore different ideas and you come up with, well, what's the strategy that gets us the best results in this mm -hmm. given project. Um, and I don't think it's the same strategy each time. Uh, do you think that, the, do you focus on the exterior or the interior or both? Is one weighted? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think you need to think of it all together. You're trying to solve a problem. You want to be in the space. You want the building to feel from outside like it's part of the land. I'm talking about these sites now that are kind mm -hmm. of beautiful and wild. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in San Francisco, it's a very different thing because you're given 25 feet of width, usually. Yeah. right? And what it's like on the outside is a very kind of controlled and limited thing. And so mm -hmm. there is a real internal focus. But these buildings out on the landscape... Absolutely, I'm thinking, how does the building sit on the land? Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of an outside thing. But with every possibility that we're shifting through of how does the building sit on the land, there is also a feeling of what's it like to be in the space. For example, I'm just starting a new project in Carmel Valley, uh, or in Monterey Hills, actually, um, where... I've realized that a lot of the buildings recently we've had have been very dug into hillsides, trying to be like deferential and quiet in the land. And as soon as I got to this site, I just felt like I want to be four feet higher. I feel like I'm in a hole here. And oh. if I was four feet higher, then I would feel like open and not like there was a there was sort of a. Uh, um, repressive feeling. Yeah, I mean, I felt like the whole landscape was sort of coming down on me. And if I could just get up a little bit higher, then I would feel this relief, you know. And so, uh, so, I, and so that was the driver force. And then I started thinking about, well, what kind of forms? That's the thing I was sketching on my iPad down in your lobby. But that yeah. was that house, and and it's these little these little bars that are raised out of the ground that came from the feeling of standing on the site, going. 
I wish I were nine feet tall right now because feeling my height isn't feeling good right here. So mm. let's get up out of this meadow and, and give us some space to, to feel the air and the views and um, out of the thicket of it all. Mm. Do you differentiate at all between your own personal style now um, versus the, the work you're doing at the studio? Do you kind of, for instance, I've heard people say I'm a little bit more casual, but it seems uh, my clientele, we all work together on a project that turns out this. Um, I think, I don't think there's that much. I mean, definitely have clients who articulate, I want something mm -hmm. and I'll think, oh, that's a little different than I would if I were in that seat, you know, mm -hmm. and often it comes down to, I have some clients who just they want more excitement and more energy. And I think that's what my, they, and, and you're more, I'm more about the restraint and they're uh, like, can we dial it back yeah. and just do a couple things? I'm really like, let's well. turn it right. up. Right. Exactly. How about, we, how about we go this way? Exactly. So we need to swap those clients. <laughs> a little bit, right? But no, like I'm doing uh, a house uh, that's our crystal house. And it's all these forms that are all like inspired by crystals. How and, killer, you know, it's I love really your work, exciting. Man. It sounds like you're doing you know, it looks, the projects look exciting. It is exciting. It's so cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's great stuff we're working on these days. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, if you consider some of the newer architects that are coming of age right now, um, would you give them any advice on what to not do, what to make sure and do? Because you're influential. Your work's influential to the people who are learning their craft at the moment. I don't know. It's funny that you would say that, though. I still feel like I'm the new architect. I'm the little kid. I mean, I know I just turned 50 and probably I'm not <laughs> considered by all listeners to be the, the young new kid. But um, so just to, uh, yeah, advice to people starting out. Um, uh, no, but just back to that same topic, I do really feel that... Um, I feel like whatever I know now, um, there have been so many parts times in my career where I was like, you know, I remember distinctively interviewing for a job and someone saying, um, oh, I'm, we're interviewing another architect who's got like 20 more years of experience. Why should we hire you? And I, and I remember saying, oh, well, I got more enthusiasm. I got new ideas. You should hire the young kid who's going to work twice as hard and has something to prove. And now that I'm kind of at the other side of that equation, I keep thinking like, I didn't know anything then. This is such a learn by mistakes and by experience kind of profession. So mm -hmm. even where I am 15 years in, I feel like, you know, I listen to your other podcasts um, of architects who have a lot more experience than I do. And I'm like, uh, they know a lot more than I do. Um, yeah. I just feel like, you know, I remember I have this image of my mind of Alvar Alto. There's a video of him. It's probably on YouTube now um, sketching. And he probably was 95 or 100 years old and he was just sitting there and drawing and what was coming out of his pencil and what was going through his mind which obviously you don't know but you just see the calm and the poise and the mastery and drawing on all that experience and I just think that what we do is not a young person's game in terms of um, how much maturity and experience and um, trying different things out and being in different situations sets you up for the next thing so i think patience is uh is something um you know don't try to do it all at once just try to make the most of every little thing 
I think another thing, and I tell this to people in our office all the time, um, there are no bad assignments in this profession. There's always some really good thing you can do with whatever you've been asked to do, even if the client is asking for something that you would never in your mind think um, is the, the, the best thing to be doing here. You can always improve upon it. You can always, you know, one of my first jobs was working on parking structures and, you know, how do you get a better parking plan out of this high rise building? Mm -hmm. um, and I remember thinking, you know, how lame it was that I had to just like do a month now on this parking thing. That was going to yeah, be what I was doing was for the next stoked. month. And I started getting into yeah. it and throwing like, this yeah. is like this cool little puzzle I'm solving. And, yeah. you know, somewhere down the road that served me well in other ways. And mm -hmm. so... You know, the fact that somebody, we have a profession where we are designing, we're solving problems, we're creating things. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just a kind of amazing opportunity. And, yeah. the, and and you need to be just grateful of the fact that, you know, that that's what, what we get to do. It's a yeah, real it's, opportunity. It's super fun. Um, you know, every morning I wake up, I'm Stoked. I mean, it's that's. Um, yeah, I think everyone in this profession in the design field. I'm sure it's the same for furniture design, right? Or industrial design. No. And I noticed that about you. I mean, like you have this enthusiasm and this sort of love for what you do. And I would say to other people that if you don't have that, run for somewhere else because you don't survive without a heavy degree of optimism. I mean, there's so many hurdles and roadblocks and surprises to what we are doing that you always have to be fueled by this passion and this optimism of like, no, no, we're going to nail this. I know it looks like that's a roadblock and a dead end, but no, no, you know, let's take two steps back and regroup <laughs> and let's find the yeah. other way out of here and then end up. And like, you know, all these projects that are my favorite projects and at the end we're all hugging each other and saying, wow, wasn't it fun? Like there were dark moments in all of them. Like it's just, it's tough what we do. It's not this linear, you know, connect the dots, A, B, C. It's definitely like, okay, here we are now. What do we do about it? What's the best next move? And so um, it takes that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of, you know, appreciation of, yeah. of what you're doing. The, uh, the saying I like is, let's not talk about the storms. Let's just bring home the ships to the harbor. Let's just get there. Um, so, hey. So that's, I was just thinking of my phrase like that, which is yeah. the, the Norwegian one. There's no bad weather. There's just bad clothing. Like whatever oh. it throws at you, you just put on the right stuff and you deal with that's it. That's a better one. <laughs> Thank you. No, I like the harbors. Yeah, no, that's I like that one. That's, um, yeah, <laughs> I like it. What about your favorite? I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this question because we've had, I've had such a good time. Thank you so much for coming. But this is maybe my uh, final question, unless uh, another one comes to <laughs> mind, right? Uh, what is your favorite? Like your last house until the next one comes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trey, if you're listening, I, I really do hope that uh, this is our last That's house. Our forever house, Trey. It's forever. <laughs> but we're not going to nominate the next one. Forever slash not forever. Yeah, but just uh, don't put up the hype marks. No. Um, what, what's your favorite room in your house and why? Um, it's funny because we really um, redid. We, we're in a house where we put a lot of thought. This was house number four for us that we got to fix up. And we finally, you know, our kids were old enough to know where they were going. And so 
Um, there's a lot about this house. Like we're just always pinching ourselves going, I don't know. I don't want to go on vacation. I just want to sit here or whatever. Um, I love my bedroom and I could, it's funny because I always, I'm always telling clients, you know, let's make the bedroom small. You'll spend your time in other places. But our bedroom is just overlooking Massive. these. Tr- oh. No, it's really small. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like right. three bedrooms. Like in this, right. it's a two bedroom Hot house. tub in the bedroom. <laughs> no, it's very, it's very kind of undersized. Uh, and it's just surrounded by these windows with divided lights that look out on these trees. I think people would be surprised. The house that I live in is not a super modern house. It's a very old house that we we modernized it. We put in a lot more windows and light and opened it up, but it still has all that old mm-hmm. Edwardian trim and um, mm-hmm. kind of paneling and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bedroom is just so serene. You open up the windows at night and you just kind of see the trees and the sky. Um, and that's really magical. Um, but the reality is that, you know, we have kind of a kitchen family room that open up to each other and that open up to our yard. And we're that's where you know 90 percent of our time is like most people you know near the kitchen but we kind of have it set up with the couches i have a window seat where i can just sit um yeah i can all weekend i can just i'm i'm learning guitar right now i'm teaching myself this is my kind of teach it old dog new tricks thing um and i just sit on the window seat with my guitar and anything can happen all weekend long and i'll just be happy sitting in that spot looking watching the fog roll in and watching the kids play fun i play guitar i played since third grade yeah i play the same three songs since eighth grade yeah um but i jam a lot i, I jam last night too what are the songs uh there are like three that i made up and then i do like knocking on heaven's door and i think free falling and free falling that's uh, on my short list we could we could jam together Maybe yeah we should put that on the do you play the correct podcast? chords because i just play the ones that i like to play uh, well, I don't have a good enough ear to play what I like to play, so I just play what the guy in the YouTube video told me to play. Yeah, um, that's, maybe it's correct. I don't know that guy. No, I've, I've got, there's like a there's a three chord songbook I yeah. have. This you do it with the capo. Like, you do one fret up. I, I do sometimes use the capo yeah. just because I get sick of C G A D. Right. Right. But oh, I <laughs> love playing music, and it may be only like last night I played, and I played the piano too. And to most listeners, hey, they'd probably think it was pretty the first time, and it sounded good the second time. If you live in my house, you're probably... You hate it. Please stop playing. Yeah, my wife started suggesting, like, oh, he's playing all this bad Pink Floyd stuff from his youth that's mm-hmm. driving me crazy because I never liked Pink Floyd. That's what my wife's saying. So she'll then say, oh, play this Beatles song or play something that she loves. And then she now never does that because I'll play it, like... A hundred thousand times yes. so that I can work through it and then I'll ruin the song so I'm taking like two or three of her very favorite songs have oh, just been totally ruined so now she's like she's go back to Pink Floyd I already yeah. don't like it that yeah. way that's safe territory but do you find I find this pleasure but um, just the act of making music is a little bit like I guess my same design mind is creating something of nothing I have an idea and it made made into a piece of furniture I have an idea and it changes up a floor plan i dream up baseboards right just like i'm taking an instrument and and a little bit of energy added and now there's a musicality yeah and i love that act of making the music it fills me up every time and um i'm sorry for my to my family but i just enjoy it immensely. And it you'd probably be a meaner up. person around the house if you didn't have that joy. So they're probably benefiting, even though you're killing the music for them. Yeah. 
No, it's so good. But you must feel the same way, I guess. Yeah, I mean, what I've noticed is that for a long time, we talked about just sort of being overworked and overwhelmed and not having any breaks in professional life. For me, the guitar is that break where, you know, I'm new and it's hard. And so it just takes my entire brain. And so I'm solving <laughs> this problem. And so all the other stuff that's bugging me 24-7, it's gone when I'm playing music. And I love music, so there's that kind of sensory enjoyment that comes from diving in deep to something mm -hmm. that's not my projects. It's not design. Mm -hmm. And even though there is certainly a creativity in it all, it's also so different that it just, then I come back and I'm like, all right, now let's go draw something. Now let's go, mm -hmm. you know, build something. So for yeah. me, it's the, it's almost like the vacation or the, the de-stressor. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming to our studio. It was a real treat. Oh, uh, the treat's mine, man. We keep running across each other at, at uh, actually our daughter's school and other places too, but uh, love sitting down with you. Super impressed with your work, uh, as I know so many people are. So thank thanks you, Jeff. For spending that means the time. a lot coming from you. Yeah, thank you. You guys are kicking it. Thanks, buddy.